Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You'll need a Bible to follow along in our message. So these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back if you need one. Then get their attention. They'll get one of those Bibles to you. It's marked for you at Ecclesiastes 2. One of the classes that I was required to take in college was economics. The professor at U of M claimed that most economists don't understand their subject. And if you want to pass for one, you say, supply and demand, and you shake your head and you'll be considered an economist. Now, about the only other thing I know about economics in addition to supply and demand is the concept of expected return on investment. That is, rational people only invest in what they reasonably anticipate will provide an adequate return for whatever they're risking. Now, okay, who really cares about all of that? Who cares about economics? Well, the same kind of calculation that investors make when deciding where to put their money, the rest of us make regularly, often subconsciously, about all of our decisions. Should I start taking classes at night? Should I pursue an advanced degree? Should I go to lunch today at that new restaurant in town? Should I befriend my neighbor, the new guy at work? Should I volunteer at a homeless shelter? Should I volunteer at church? Should I upgrade my phone, upgrade my cable package, downgrade my house? And the list of decisions that we make every day Big and small could literally go on endlessly. And in all of them, we're asking, consciously or subconsciously, whether it's worth it. Will there be a return on my investment of money, of time, of energy? What will I and or others get out of it? Now, what we ask about our individual specific decisions, we also ask, usually subconsciously, about life in general. As we go through our day-to-day routine and we engage in the things that we have to do, whether chosen by us or foisted on us, we're asking ourselves, is it worth it? Why am I doing this? Is it really worth the time or the money or the energy? With all the difficulty, with the heartaches, the pain, the disappointments, is what I'm doing really worth it? Is this all there is? Is this all you get? In the words of that great theologian, Billy Joel, Anthony works in the grocery store saving his pennies for someday. Mama Leone left a note on the door. She said, Sonny, move out to the country. Working too hard can give you a heart attack. Ack, 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 ack. You ought to know by now, who needs a house out in Hackensack? Is that all you get with your money? And it seems such a waste of time if that's what it's all about. Mama, if that's moving up, then I'm moving out. In our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who wrote it, has been asking this very question. Is it worth it? At the very beginning of the book, in chapter 1 and verse 3, he asked, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? 
And as he's begun to examine and to experience life from a number of angles, he's still come up with the same conclusion that we see in chapter 2 and verse 17. He's hating life. Notice verse 17 of chapter 2. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. In verse 22 of chapter 2, he asks, What do people get from all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. The sad realization that it's really not worth it does not cause most people to end their lives, but it does mean that for them life has ended. We go on indeed with our activities, but we're no longer truly alive if this is really all there is. In the words of another great theologian, John Mellencamp, oh yeah, life goes on, long after the thrill of living is gone. This morning we're going to see what Solomon says about life if this is indeed all there is. But of course we're also going to see what God says about life from his, God's perspective. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for making this appointment possible for us to be here. To be in your presence, with your word open, with our hearts ready to receive. Lord, grant us attentive minds and indeed receptive hearts so that we can be changed into the image of the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Now we've seen in our first four messages in Ecclesiastes that Solomon is looking at life from what he calls under the sun. That's an earthbound, time-bound, limited view that renders the verdict meaningless, futile empty. And Solomon does not arrive at this conclusion lightly, but rather through his own experience as he engages in every activity imaginable to see whether meaning can be found in any of them. Last week at the beginning of chapter two, we saw that he gave himself to pleasure and pleasures of all types, to wine, to women, to song, as they say. And he thought it fun while it lasted. But the thrill was only while it lasted. And then when it's gone, he needs another experience to keep the high, as it were. Having found that pleasure too was meaningless, he says in verse 12 of chapter 2. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. Now if that sounds familiar, it's because he said the same thing back in chapter 1 and verse 17. There he said, then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. So why is he doing it again? Well, he's returning to it to ensure that he didn't miss anything. Solomon wants his examination of life and his search for meaning to be absolutely exhaustive. His experiment with life is going to be the last word on what Life is like under the sun because if Solomon can't do it with all of his wealth and power and wisdom, then no one can get it done. That's why he says at the end of verse 12 in chapter 2, what more can the king's successor do 
than what has already been done. So when he speaks of the king's successor, in the words of one commentator, he's looking ahead to the future and he's wondering who else will have the same questions that he has about human existence. With those people in mind, he wants to write a definitive statement. Solomon, as the wisest and wealthiest king, is in a unique position to do this. Who could ever add anything to the experience of someone like Solomon? He's the ultimate test case. If he cannot find the meaning of life, then who can? What hope is there for anyone to answer these questions? So he returns to a subject he already visited because he wants to make sure he has covered every detail. And he's the one to do it. And no one coming after him is going to be able to do it better. So this task is going to have to be fulfilled by Solomon. And so now he's returning to consider wisdom, he says, in chapter 2 and verse 12, but also madness and folly. Now, madness and folly or foolishness go together. Solomon is not here describing three different categories, but only two. On the one hand, there's wisdom, which is used here in the most general sense to refer to human thinking at its very best. Wisdom in this sense is not the deep spiritual understanding that begins and ends with the fear of the Lord, as the Bible says elsewhere. But it's simply good, moral, practical advice for daily life that can come from people like Benjamin Franklin Emily Post, Oprah Winfrey, Dr. Phil. And then on the other hand, in contrast to wisdom, there is madness and folly. Or maybe it would be better to say mad folly or mad foolishness. Because these two belong together. Putting these two together is a figure of speech called a hindiadis. In which two words are joined by the word and in order to express a single idea. So we have, for example, in Genesis chapter 3, when the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, sinned against God by disobeying his prohibition to eat against this one particular tree in the midst of the garden. God pronounced uh, punishments upon all the man and then upon the woman. And as he was speaking to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and your pregnancy. Now notice the word and there. That's an example of this. They're the same thing. They're describing the same event, the pain and the pregnancy. So Solomon is returning to consider the value of life that's lived in a generally wise manner as opposed to a life that's given to, we could say, mad folly or insane foolishness. We want to see together this morning what he found. So I have an outline that's inserted in your program as we do each week. If you don't have that out, I encourage you to take a look at it now. Solomon found this, first of all, there is little value in a good life. There is little value in a good life. Now, notice I did not say there is no value in a good life, but rather there's little value in a good life. And the reason I say that there is no value is because of the next item in your outline, which is indeed that there is some value. And that's because of what verse 13 says. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. So at last here, finally, in a book that's been all gloom from the very beginning, here we're given a ray of hope. There is indeed something good in life. Living wisely is better than living foolishly. So this is progress. Because he said in chapter 1 that wisdom is unable to straighten out what is crooked or to count what is missing. 
And he said that having more wisdom increases sorrow and grief. But now he's saying all things being equal, having wisdom is still better than the alternative. He had said earlier that that there's nothing to be gained in life, but here he admits that wisdom is at least somewhat beneficial. This is obvious as the benefit of being in the light is better than being in the darkness, unless, of course, you're sleeping. And so that's what he says in verse 13. And then he extends that comparison in verse 14. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. He's saying that the value of wisdom is not simply that it gives light, but that it enables us to see. It gives vision, not just illumination. To say that the wise person has, quote, eyes in his head means that he can actually see what he's doing and where he's going. He's one who has a practically useful perspective on life. By contrast, the fool walks in darkness. And this darkness is not just around him but it's inside of him. The Bible often makes this contrast. It sometimes uses light and darkness to show the absolute difference between knowing God and living without him or between living in holiness and stumbling through life in the darkness of sin. So the Apostle John said about the Lord Jesus when he came to earth and yet he was rejected by his own and most of those to whom he taught and ministered. He said this light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So here in Ecclesiastes 2, the Bible simply says that the difference between wisdom and foolishness is like light and darkness. One has paraphrased it this way. I saw that wisdom was more valuable by far than foolishness. It makes more sense to pursue the course of wisdom than to waste one's life in revelry and merriment. This was as clear as night and day to me. So here Solomon's giving us conventional wisdom about wisdom. It's better to be wise than to be a mad fool. There's your glimmer of hope. But that glimmer of hope doesn't last long. Because although a good life has some value, I say in your outline. There is no ultimate value. And that's because of what's said at the end of verse 14. I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. The same fate overtakes the foolish and the wise. Now that fate that comes to both of them is death. And we see this at the end of verse 16. Like the fool, the wise too must die. And since that's the case, there's no ultimate value to living a good, well-ordered, wise life. So eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow, what? We die. I mean, if everybody has the same fate, then what's the ultimate advantage to living one way versus the other? This no ultimate value is seen in a couple of things that I have in your outline. The fact that we cannot keep what we live for. We cannot keep what we live for. Verse 15. I said to myself, the fate of the fool overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. 
So you go through that well-ordered life. You plan, you strategize, you save. You make it through, and ultimately, what advantage is there to you versus someone who lived another way? You both wind up at the same place. You both die. The psalmist said this, The wise die... That the foolish and the senseless, and the, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. We leave our wealth to others, and everything else is left as well, including any memory of those lives we led. Verse sixteen: For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Now, it's not that we won't be remembered at all. We just won't be remembered for long. Of course, we'll be remembered at the funeral. We'll be remembered when those first few holidays come and we're not there. We'll be remembered at reunions. But after a generation or certainly two, we're forgotten. I know really nothing of my great-grandmothers. The truth is, because they died uh, when I was fairly young, I know very little about my grandmothers. And my children know absolutely nothing, or virtually nothing, about either. Now, maybe some of you had grandparents and even great-grandparents who lived further into your lives than did mine, but still, what do you know about your great-great-grandmother on your father's side? One preacher has said, you know, family trees have become big business. People have a yearning to know their ancestry. But he issued a word of caution. When you pursue your family tree, you never know what you may find sitting out on a branch. You could find a horse thief or a Democrat or a Republican, depending on your persuasion. That yearning that we have to know about our ancestry is a further testimony that we die and we're soon forgotten. Consider the billions of wise men and fools who've been born and lived their lives, some of them long, some of them short, and they've gone to the grave and they're now forgotten. And for many, we don't even know where their graves might be. A hundred years from now, who will remember you Or who will remember me? And in spite of our grand aspirations, the sad truth is that someday all of us are going to be nothing more than an entry in a database at the IRS. Both the wise and the foolish are forgotten. We can can visit, we can look at, we can marvel at the pyramids in Egypt. But we don't know who built them. So the verdict of all of that is in verse 17. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Strong life, strong language, I hated life. His quest for life had brought him face to face with death and the vision of death was something with which he could not cope and the reality of death had snatched him up and shaken the joy of out of even living. The infamous skeptic Voltaire said, quote, I hate life, and yet I'm afraid to die. 
There is little value in a merely good life. That's because we can't keep what it is we live for. And secondly, it's because we cannot control what we live for. If we think that joy is to be found in the accomplishments that we leave behind, that we can make an impact that will be of lasting value, that somehow we can build our own pyramids and we can be immortalized, then listen to what Solomon says in verse 18. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. We've all said you can't take it with you. It means that we're going to have to leave it, whatever it is, to someone else. And so it's said you will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. No one can take it with them. This futility of not being able to take what you've worked your entire life for with you, you leave it to someone else, was illustrated in the story of a lady whose husband died But this husband did not trust her, so he put in his will that she'd have to bury his millions with him. She tried to get the will nullified, but without success. So that day, as they were laying him to rest, as they began to close the casket, she came up and she put in a check for the full amount. Let's see if he's able to cash it. Now, when you ask... The question, how much did Rockefeller or Howard Hughes or any other billionaire leave behind? How much did they leave behind? And the answer is always every bit of it. Every dime. Verse 19 says then, and who knows whether that person to whom you leave it will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So Solomon could not take it with him and he could not control it. It would pass into the hands of his offspring and who knows whether his sons would be wise like him or would be fools. And so he suddenly realized that all his labors, his wealth, his building projects, his city would be left in the hands of his children. And how would they turn out? And how would their children turn out? The Bible describes for us the rule of Solomon's son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a fool's fool. Under his reign, the kingdom his father had left to him was torn into two through civil war. And idols were constructed, replacing the worship of God. And for 500 years, the people of Israel suffered. A fool. So verse 20, Solomon says, So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. Solomon, like everybody else, could not control his accomplishments. We have our own monuments that we try to control. For some of us, it's our business. We pour every moment, every bit of energy into our businesses. For some, it's our antiques. We polish them and we stand back and we adore them. For some, it's our homes. 
Our home, we think, must be the home so that when someone drives by, they say, wow. For some, it's their children. For some, it's their ministries. And what tragedy it is to watch a life's work crumble even in your lifetime. There's not a church anywhere that is not one generation away from potential failure, from compromise, and from dishonoring the Lord. We can't control it. So verse 22. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving from which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. So. I hope you're getting a a feel for this book at this point. You should be feeling very down. This has been like the tolling of a bell to announce a funeral. It's the same refrain over and over and over again. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. There's no gain. There's no profit. There's no advantage. And so we're brought to the low point of the book. Now, I'm glad to say it gets a bit brighter starting next week. But Solomon has used terms like, I've hated life, I've hated my work, who knows what's to come? No one. It's grievous, I've despaired, it's hopeless. He speaks of sorrowfulness, burdensomeness, of great evil. But Solomon has been looking at life from under the sun. And yet there's another perspective that the Bible gives. And that's echoed in my last song that I'm going to quote but it's echoed in a song by a of all things a country group now i'm not a country person country music person but brooks and dunn had a song that says this old man wrigley lived in that white house down the street where i grew up mama used to send me over with things we struck a friendship up i spent a few long summers out on his old porch swing He says he was in the war when in the Navy. He lost his wife and he lost his baby. I broke down and asked him, how do you keep from going crazy? He said, I'll see my wife and son in just a little while. And I asked him what he meant and he looked at me with a smile and said, I raise my hands, I bow my head. I'm finding more and more truth in the words written in red. They tell me that there's more to life than just what I can see. And oh, I believe. Eh, Maybe these country guys are not so bad. But hang on, I'll quote them again later. There is more to life than this life. So although there's little value in a merely good life, I say in your outline, there's infinite value in a godly life. You see, friends, there's what we would consider a good life. A life lived wisely. A life where you dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's. That's a good life, an orderly life. There's little value Ultimately in that. But there's infinite value in a godly life. And there's a great difference from a merely good life than a godly life. 
If we understandably despair of life, then the only way out is to look at life not from under the sun, but from above the sun and look at life beyond the grave. And when we do that, the Bible teaches a couple of things. I say in your outline, God then preserves what we live for. God preserves what we live for. In the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, the Bible says this, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, these words open up a perspective that can help us to love life instead of hating it. Rather than only looking at things under the sun, the Bible tells us to lift our gaze higher to the throne of the universe where Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Rather than limiting ourselves to human wisdom, as useful as that is in many ways, we're encouraged to set our minds on heavenly things. And what is it that we see when we look at life from this lofty vantage point? We see Jesus Christ, who is the perfection of all wisdom. The one that this very same book of Colossians that I just quoted from says in chapter 2 and verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus Christ is the very wisdom of God. And furthermore, he is the life of God. Jesus Christ is, according to Scripture, quote, the true God and eternal life. And we see his life in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 that I just quoted, where the Scripture declares that Jesus has been raised to the right hand of God. That is, after Jesus was crucified for our sins, after he was dead and he was buried, he was raised back from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he was exalted to the right hand of God, which is the place of all authority and power over the universe. Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. And because Jesus is alive, the grave is not the end for anyone who is wise enough to trust in him. Solomon hated life because he saw that it would bring an end to all of his wisdom. But he was only looking at these things from an earthly perspective under the sun. For those who set their minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, there is life and there is wisdom that is beyond the grave. This means that who we are will not be forgotten, but will be remembered through all eternity. Jesus is our very life, and the Bible promises that when the risen Jesus comes to earth again, we will be with him alive in glory. The Bible assures us further that our lives are, as I quoted just a bit ago, hidden with Christ in God. Now that verse is teaching not so much that our lives are concealed when it says hidden, but that they're protected. All our memories are safe with God in Christ. The word used for hidden comes from the Greek word krypto. And it forms the basis for English words like encryption. And that's one helpful way to think about the spiritual implications of this verse. Our lives are encrypted with Christ in God. So he preserves us in his son that nothing essential to who we are will ever be lost forever. God will remember us 
even when we can scarcely remember him and when we fear that no one else will remember us at all. So are you afraid of death? Are you hating life? Do you worry that you'll be forgotten? Are you discouraged by the emptiness of your existence? Do you feel that it's all a striving after the wind? Then here's what you do, friends. You look above the sun to the Son of God. And He will raise you up from the dead and He will protect your life forever. For those who live a godly life, God preserves what we live for now. And I say in your outline as well, God perpetuates what we live for now. If you live a godly life, a life that is centered on God and on God's goals and on God's values, not just a good life in the eyes of everybody else, and at the end of your life, at the funeral, they just say he was a good man or she was a good woman. But instead of that, if you live for something more, you live for you live a godly life, then God preserves what you're living for now, and then he will perpetuate that. Now, how will he how will he perpetuate that? Well, one, you're going to live forever with him. The Bible tells us in what's called the resurrection chapter in your New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15. The entire chapter is about this issue of Christ's resurrection and therefore our guaranteed resurrection if we are in him. The whole chapter is about that. It's 58 verses long. You get to the last verse, verse 58, and it's summarized this way. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Here's why. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You will live on. And not only that, the results of what you have done for Christ will live on for eternity. What a beautiful thing. Not just the stuff that you've done for yourself. That stuff doesn't last. Even if it's good stuff. It's what's done for Christ that lasts. Did you know that when you die, you do not immediately stand before the judgment? If you're a Christian when you die, you're immediately in the presence of the Lord, but not immediately at the judgment. All Christians will stand before what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. We will all stand before him to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. But that happens at the end of the age. Now, I admit the Bible doesn't tell us why it doesn't just happen right away. But I have a theory. My theory is it's because the fruit of your labor isn't known yet. We're going to see how this all plays out to the end of human history. And everything that you have done for God in investing yourself in what he says is most important, namely the pursuit of his mission, bringing people into his kingdom. God will perpetuate that. He will continue his work in those people that are reached because of your ministry, because of your service to Christ. He will continue to work in them and he will work through them to reach still others. And one day you will stand before the Lord and you will see the fruit of your labor extended from generation to generation. What a blessed thing that will be. God using the gospel to change others long after we're gone. So your take-home truth is this. 
A godly life is the only meaningful life. Now, I mentioned Brooks and Dunn. So I'll mention them one more time, and believe it or not, I'm done. But they say in that song, a little bit later, they say, a few years later I was off at college, talking to mom on the phone one night, getting all caught up on the gossip, the ins and outs of the small town life. She said, oh, by the way, son, old man Wrigley's died. Later on that night, I laid there thinking back, thought about a couple long lost summers. I didn't know whether to cry or laugh. And then they say this. If there was ever anybody that deserved a ticket to the other side, it'd be that sweet old man who looked me in the eye and said, I raise my hands, I bow my head, I'm finding more and more truth in the words in red. They tell me that there's more to life than just what I can see. They say here, if there was ever anybody who deserved a ticket to the other side, it was that guy. So I appreciate the wisdom of what they said earlier. But the truth is, forgive the grammar, there ain't nobody who deserves a ticket to heaven. You see, we don't get to heaven by being good. And that's another reason that a merely good life amounts to nothing. Because our goodness before an absolutely holy God is still always tainted in some way with sin, even the good things we do. So the Bible tells us that all our righteous deeds, I'm quoting, all our righteous deeds are before God as filthy rags. So what are you going to bring before God at the end of your life? What are you going to offer to God to recommend yourself to him so that you abide with him forever? What's that going to be? Friends, if it's anything other than the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus, then your life is lived in vain. No one deserves. But here's the great news. Jesus died the death that we deserve. And he lived the life that we were supposed to live. And when we give our lives to him, when we come to him believing who he is and what he has done, he applies that perfect life to us. So now I have the righteousness that I can't muster myself even with a good life. I have his perfection. And all of my sin, past, present, and future, is covered by the blood of Christ shed for me on the cross. I have both of those given to me, and God now has guaranteed me a place in heaven so that all of the benefits I mentioned earlier will apply to me, will apply to you if you come to Christ. And that means that I need not live in fear. I need not live in worry. Because my life is encrypted, is hidden, with God in Christ. So we're going to bow in just a moment. And as we do, if you've come to Jesus, thank him for that. Thank him that your life means something now. It means something not only for time, but for eternity. Confess to him if you've found yourself drifting from what's really important to living for what will not last and not doing what you do for him. But then if you have never trusted Jesus Christ, those of you that came into this room, invited by someone else perhaps, just wondering what this church thing's all about, we're glad, delighted that you're here. But this is God's appointment for you, for you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And so you realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that Christ 
who lived that perfect life, died on the cross for you. You repent. What does that mean? It simply means I'm going to go God's way, no longer my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow and pray in just a moment, you pray from your heart to God in your own words, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus Christ's life and death applied to me. And I give you my life as my Lord. I'm going to follow you by your grace from this day forward. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, the realism of your word that tells us in all its negativity and all its darkness what life is like apart from you, how depressing it ultimately is, how if we are consistently looking at life just from under the sun, indeed we will arrive at the same conclusion that the wise one Solomon did, that we will despair of life, that we would hate life. Lord, you are not the one and you are not the cause of the despair that is so prevalent in this life. You're the giver of life. You're the one who gives new life through your Holy Spirit. It is the evil one who seeks to destroy and destroys life and destroys hope. And yet, Lord, we are all naturally attuned. We come into this world with a mindset that is limited, only looking at life from under the sun. So thank you for lifting our gaze through the words of your servant Solomon. And I pray particularly for those who came into this room not having a relationship with you. Oh, Holy Spirit, move upon their hearts and draw them to yourself. Give them new life such that they trust you and live for you. And we together will now have lips that sing your praise and lives that declare your glory. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.